This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by John Taylor, who is the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University. John is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and is one of the world's greatest living monetary economists. John is also the inventor of the Taylor Rule, which is a canonical description of how central banks change interest rates in response to inflation and output gaps. He is also one of the founders of the New Keynesian macroeconomic paradigm and is consistently cited as a likely future winner of a Nobel Prize in economics, which I think would be more than well-deserved. John has also served in many positions in government. He has served in the U.S. Navy. He has also served in the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And he has served as the U.S. Treasury Undersecretary of International Affairs during the George W. Bush administration. Welcome, John. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, you were born in Yonkers, New York. You're a Princeton undergrad, you're a Stanford PhD. How did you get interested in economics in the first place? And, and what influenced you to get into the field of monetary economics? Well, I majored in economics in, in college. I went to Princeton and uh, had some advisors, Phil Howard, for example, who just encouraged looking at the overall, the, the macro economy. And that interested me from the start. And uh, not so much that that's what I was going to do, but I did my we had to do a senior thesis, and then my senior it's thesis. required at Princeton. Required, yes, required. And, and so I did it in that, that particular topic, and uh, that sort of got me interested. And I, I went to graduate school at Stanford after that. Actually, I had a little interruption in the Navy, went to the Navy uh, in between Princeton coming out here, which was formative, to be sure, but then came back here. And I was, I was interested in econometrics, actually, from... Ted Anderson was my advisor. He's since passed away. He's a great advisor. And I uh, did econometrics, but that was a more on my way to studying monetary. I never never really lost the interest in monetary economics and, and how you could smooth the business cycle, how you could have a better economic policy. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm curious, like, so you, um, you've been, uh, you know, a professor, um, uh, at Stanford for, for some time. I'm curious, like, how, how did some of these collaborations, for example, um, in, in the early uh, New Keynesian days, um, folks like Ned Phelps, for example, I, I think you know, one of the biggest, I think, contributions I think that you, you made to the New Keynesian literature was you know, coming up with this idea of having a monetary policy rule or you know, would, would later be named a Taylor rule. And initially, uh, it was sort of used as this third equation to allow for the determinacy of equilibrium. And, um, and, and it turned out, I think later, a great description of, of the world and how the Fed actually would follow monetary policy when it would follow interest rate targets and, 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 and prescription for optimal policy later. But I'm curious, like, how did you get interested in this idea of you know, central banks should be following interest rate targets um, instead of you know, just, say, uh, money growth rule targets, you know, things that, you know, obviously Milton Friedman was a, a big fan and, and proponent of and, and certainly captured a lot of the Fed's interest in the 1970s and 80s. How did you um, fall into this um, sort of conversation about following interest rate targets and, and how did that interest you um, in, in the early New Keynesian days? Well, it came very gradually. It was uh, originally 
built and was interested in econometric models. Uh, they were quite elaborate. They did have this mixture of expectations and sticky prices, which I thought was very important. And that was a way to both have the ability to affect expectations of future prices, but also have some rigidities, which still seems to me an important aspect of the economy. So those are the basic structure, which, is, which was fundamental. But in that context, you have to have, have, to have a, a, a model of policy. And of course, Milton Friedman was a great influence in the idea of having a money growth rule. Having a rule is essential. How do you study policy without some kind of notion of what the central bank is going to do next year, next quarter? That's because expectations are so important. You had to build on expectations and, and you build them in by, by somehow how having a description of what the central bank will do. Something so, that Sargent and Lucas sort of brought in. I'm sorry? Yeah, something that Sargent and Lucas and the rational expectations, microfinance models sort of came in in the yeah, 70s and 80s. Was, in some sense, they, they never had sticky prices. Mm -hmm. That was a huge difference. They, they had perfectly flexible prices. And so what, what I thought was important, uh, based on my studies and, and looking at the world, is to have some kind of, some kind of rigidity. Uh, but not permanent, something that could be influenced by policy, you could, you could do it. So that's why a rule became important, a strategy for the central bank became important. And uh, I really began to look at that, but it's gradual over time. You know, you had to have some stipulation of what the central bank was going to do, what the fiscal policy was going to do, otherwise, how would you have a model if you didn't have some description? So early on, there was a description, and that gradually evolved to some description where the, the, the primary variable which the central bank had influence on was the interest rate and that affected the money supply. We always had a money, a money demand function in these models. That was a very, still a very important part of it. But I thought, based on my experience in Washington, um, I worked on the CEA a couple times, and you could see, I became good friends with the policymakers you could see that their focus was more on the interest rate, so I wanted to find a way to do that, but to preserve the notion of a policy rule, of a strategy that the central bank was continuing. So it was a gradual thing over time, but it involved research in academia, um, and then getting my PhD, of course, but going to work in the Council of Economic Advisors in Washington, coming back and doing more work and going back again. That mixture back and forth was very important. I had forced in some four stints in the government if you count, if you count the Navy. Well, that, um, that's fantastic. And I, I want to get back to that uh, a, a little bit later um, when talking about um, the, sort of the fiscal outlook. Um, but sticking to monetary policy, um, just for a second here, um, how exactly did the, the Taylor Rule come about? You know, there's this, obviously, your famous 1993 paper, you know, Discretion versus Policy Rules and Practice. Um, you know, it, it you know, famously has you know, a coefficient uh, um, of, uh, I think, 0.5 on the output gap and, and 1.5 on, on inflation, um, you know, which I think became, I, I think, you know, your most cited paper. And uh, it has been an incredible um, description of the world and, and something that, you know, central banks all over the world um, pay attention to closely when, when thinking about what uh, monetary policy should be. Um, even if perhaps they don't cl follow it as, as closely as they should at, at, at times. How did um, this idea um, come about to, to write that 1993 paper? Well, it wasn't instant. It, it, took, a, it took a while. By the way, it's 30 years old uh, as we speak. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, the 30th what, what anniversary. Is, uh, originally, it didn't set out to write a simple 
But if you had a, if you looked at policy, it was complicated. And it isn't there a way we could make it simpler? And that was, a, that was what I strived for. And I didn't know it would become as useful or as popular as it's, as it's become globally, as, as well known. It was mainly a method to simplify in a way that people could understand and you could talk about it. And, you know, as you say, the coefficients 1.5 and 0.5, what could be simpler than that? Just two variables, uh, the inflation rate and the, the GDP gap, so to speak. And that was the, it was looking around. I didn't start there, for sure. I had more complicated things. And, but that seemed to work pretty well in the, in the models. Remember, this, I came about this through the models first. Make sure that your policy was going to work in the model. And you had a criterion. You wanted to have low inflation rate, around 2% or so. That was the goal. That was the 2% target. Was, I think it was the first time maybe one of the central bank had 2% before then. But they had a simple, uh, sometimes we thought maybe one and a half would be better, one would be better. Just choose an easy number. And then, um, and then work from there. And then it was, originally it was more complicated things. The exchange rate was certainly a factor that people talked about, so I considered that. But it's realized you come pretty close to optimal policy. Pretty close to the more complicated thing, which had 30 variables or 10 variables on the right-hand side. He had two. And that was... Uh, kind of an eye-opener for me, but I still thought it was something that wouldn't have as much impact as it has. Well, it's amazing. I, I feel like, yeah, it's it's like one of those strokes of, of, of brilliance and genius that, you know, you, you look back on it now 30 years later, and it's like, well, isn't that obvious, you know, that the Fed followed, you know, unemployment, inflation is part of the dual mandate. But I, I think it's it's one of those things where it was probably not at all obvious, you know, at, at the time that, that, you know, that the Fed could follow these things so closely in, in the way that, that you wrote down um, the Taylor Rule and, and something that you know, has obviously you know, influenced central banks around the world. Now, I, I want to start getting a, a little bit um, to this you know, question of like optimal policy. And I think this is where I think there's um, a lot of maybe confusion about uh, and, and sometimes criticism about you know, the Taylor Rules being something that, you know, is too rigid to follow mechanically and um, where I think... And, and, you know, people say things like, oh, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, adopt the Taylor Rule. Well, I think that the irony is that, you know, central banks around the world have already adopted Taylor Rules. Um, and, and you can just see that uh, in, in the data. Um, but I think one um, one sort of misconception is that, you know, you're, that you advocate for something that's, you know, strictly mechanical. If you look to, for example, things like the Fed Oversight and Reform Act, the Reform Act from uh, 2016, something which you had direct influence on and, and was something that was put forward by Congress. I think that stipulated that, you know, Congress could revise these rules and that uh, that there wouldn't, you know, necessarily be such a, a mechanical thing. I'm curious, like, how has um, your time in, in Washington, uh, when, when you visit, talking with Congress people and, and talking with um, monetary policymakers, I mean, how do you respond to, to those sorts of um, um, critics who, um, who argue that, you know, that... You know, Monetary policy should be not some, somewhat rules-based, um, in a sense. I'm curious. Well, let me say, the idea of a rules-based policy has always been very important. In other words, how are you going to figure out what the central bank is going to do next year if, without some kind of a, of a description of what they do? So the notion of a rule, whether it's simple or complicated, was, is essential to what I was always interested way back at the very beginning. And the idea that, well, it's too complicated to have five variables came from working in Washington, knowing people at the Fed, knowing, knowing Greenspan. Um, he was the chair of the CEA for a while. 
And so you got to sense a little bit what they were thinking about and how you could simplify it. And clearly, you had to some notion of inflation. If you had a target inflation rate 2%, then you had some sense to tighten policy when inflation got too high, ease policy when inflation got too low. So that became a, a, a key ingredient. But you also notice that, well, the central bank also looks at the state of the economy. Uh, what's the unemployment rate? What's the GDP gap? And so you had to have something in that, and that wouldn't make sense if you didn't, because the Fed is going to ease when the economy is in a, in a, a tough time. And then the other variables you maybe want to include too, as I mentioned, the exchange rate was was very common, especially for economies where international trade and, and foreign exchange are very important. So I definitely considered that a lot. But the idea. I guess was was you had to have something simpler, uh, and I knew that from working in Washington several times, and knowing central bankers uh, in the U.S. and other places, and that's where the idea of, a, of a, as you say, simple. And people always argue it's too simple. How could policy be so simple as two variables? But it's turned out to be pretty good. And by the way, it's not always. You know, sometimes they get off, and I think the the Fed recently has has been off. Now they're back on again, closer at least. And so people are looking back, well, what was wrong with them? They were so far off, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe that will bring even more attention back to some kind of a, a simple rule. I've noticed a lot of interest. And you mentioned the Congress having a quite a bit of interest in this, and there was some legislation passed. The Fed had to say what its rule was, and uh, the Congress would build into their testimony. But that faded away. I don't know, maybe to come back now, people will see how useful it actually is. Well, jumping off that, I want to touch just a little bit about the, the Taylor principle, um, this idea that the Fed needs to raise short-term interest rates more than one for one with inflation. This goes back to the, the Taylor rule you know, coefficient of 1.5 on, on inflation. Yeah, there, there's certainly been this experiment that's been playing out, uh, and, and others like John Cochran have written a, a bit about this, you know, this I think, question about you know, neo-fisherianism and, and, and so forth. Um, and, and that is like, you know, we're in this era of inflation sort of maybe peaked at 8% or so, and it's still at 6%, do we actually need to raise the Fed funds rate to above inflation to get it to come down? And it increasingly seems like that's the case, and that's where we're getting to, and, and you know, interest rates are, are uh, as of this uh, moment, you know, around 5%. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on, on, on that uh, debate uh, right now and, and where monetary policy currently is? Um, do you think the Fed has been too slow to respond to inflation that um, picked up um, a, a in May 2021 and, and um, became certainly more than just a, a temporary phenomenon as that became increasingly clear over time? Um, how do you think the Fed has, has been, how would you assess the Fed's response to this uh, early 2020s uh, inflation? Well, they were slow. In fact, we had a, we had a book on the desk here how monetary policy got behind the curve, which was a was really important thing. And, and this is the summary of, of your monetary policy uh, well, conference proceedings from last year. A lot of people contributed to this, but they were behind. No question, the interest rate was 25 basis points, and the rules would say it should be 4 or 5 or something like that. So they have gone away, quite a ways to catch up, and uh, they're now 4.5 or so. But I th still think, based on the rule, they got to go a little higher. And you could say, why one and a half? The idea is to have the real interest rate a little bit higher than normal, so that would offset the other impacts that are keeping inflation from high, basically to attenuate. And it's also very important that this be known. 
as long as it's known, the impacts are much less severe. The worst thing is a surprise <clears throat> tightening. Surprise, and that, that is conjecture. So the whole idea of a rule or a strategy is that, that people know what it is. And, uh, it's, and, and, and it's also important internationally, so the U.S. knows what's happening in Japan or Europe, and so they, they have a sense of what's going on there. So I think ultimately this is, a, this is always meant, meant to be an international aspect. That's why I'm always worried about the exchange rate, but it seems like the U.S. exchange rate is less important. But, and also let me say this, it's very important to, to say, I originally said this is a guideline. This is don't follow this exactly. There's other things that come into play. Oh, it, you go back and read my 30-year-old paper or whatever it is, you can see that pretty clear. It's, this wasn't it. Now it's become more adopted, more descriptive of what actually happens, as you say, and that's become uh, an important way to test it. Now we have how other central banks are doing it, what they don't go, they didn't follow this method in the 70s, um, and inflation went through the roof, and then they've been better at it. Um, we'll see what happens now. There's a real question about what's happening in monetary policy right now. Absolutely. I want to jump a little bit to fiscal policy and um, talking, uh, uh, to get your thoughts on that, you've uh, long spoken about um, fiscal issues in the U.S. Um, you've testified on these issues and, and you've written uh, several papers and books on this topic. You, you also served as uh, Undersecretary for, at, um, uh, for International Affairs. You ran um, OIA, or the Office of International Affairs at, at Treasury, um, in the early 2000s. Um, you've, you've spent time uh, at CEA and you've worked, uh, uh, and you've also served in the military, so, so you've... Um, uh, uh, seeing um, uh, the, the government spending side uh, at, at work very up close um, as well. I'm curious, what do you think about the long-term fiscal outlook for the U.S.? This uh, COVID era spending has piled on uh, an additional uh, you know, four plus trillion dollars in, in spending. Uh, there's uh, right now some uh, uh, negotiations in D.C. about raising the debt limit. I think you know, that's something that uh, seems to get lifted every, every few years. Uh, about 10 years ago, there was this big sort of discussion um, around Bowles-Simpson, the Bowles-Simpson uh, uh, Commission. Um, there's a lot of uh, discussions about that then. That seems to have become a bygone era almost at this point um, with, uh, I, I think, very uh, a few uh, politicians in both parties wanting to talk about sort of the reality of, of entitlement spending and, and the future path of debt. We also have inflation and, and you know, interest rates would obviously influence the, the net interest rate, uh, the net interest costs. I'm curious, you know, what do you think about the, uh, the, the fiscal outlook for the U.S. and what do you think needs to be done? So first of all, I think we talked about monetary policy. That's where the Taylor and things like that come from because I thought it was so important to have, a, have something that was better than a fixed money growth rule but had the same principles as a rule. But there's other rules. There's fiscal rules. There's rules for regulation. There's international rules. I, I always have written about this is just one of one element of good policy. We have to have a good fiscal policy, we have to have a good regulatory policy, a good international policy. So fiscal policy is a very important part of this. And I think that originally the notion is you had a balanced budget normal times and you had surpluses and deficits around that. Now we're we're far from that at this point. And I think I would be it would be easier for monetary policy, it'd be easier for policy all around if the fiscal policy also had this notion of a smaller deficit. And the deficit has been quite big, and uh, to some extent it's, it's really like monetary policy being off. They're both off, and I think that the more we come back, can come back to the basic 
elements of what good economic policy is. And rules-based is part of it. And you have a fiscal rule, is, it really makes a difference. So they, there's lots of problems with big deficits. Um, sometimes they're, you know, like the panic we had a few years ago, you had to have it, it's there already. Interest rates driven near to zero. But the, but the idea is in normal times you don't need that and you should get out of it. So I would like to see policy, fiscal policy as well as monetary policy, get back to a more normal stance. I think policy would work better if that was the case. Um, and there's also international aspects of fiscal policy too. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to see uh, Europe obviously has tried to adopt uh, fiscal rules and trying to get its um, fiscal house in order. I mean, do you have any, uh, on the international side of things, do you have any particular thoughts about um, the, the sort of uh, European experiment with, with the euro and having a, um, a monetary union um, but not a fiscal union? Um, do you well, think I think, I think that there? their decision to have a single currency was a good one. They had to I mean, rein in certain countries uh, and uh, have sort of a common policy of all. It was hard to do, but I think it, it's led to better policy. I think they're a little bit off right now, to be sure. I think it's a, it's a good system. The UK is not part of it. And so uh, ultimately, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about how the world will work. These are countries that are quite different, Italy and Germany, for example. But the idea of bringing them together with a common framework Seem, always seem to me to be good. And, you know, whether it's a Taylor rule or some other kind of rule, that is part of their thinking. It's always a part of their thinking. They, and there's influence uh, that they all know about that. So I think it's a good phenomenon that's happening, a good, good trend that's happening. But it's not the only answer because you, you still have to deal with, with differences of opinion, different cultures, different nationalities. Any thoughts on, on Japan? Uh, Japan being sort of one of the first countries to embark on quantitative easing. Um, you know, we've seen this whole decade of, of quantitative easing. I feel like the 2010s, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the monetary policy response was you know, largely embracing this uh, sort of uncon unconventional form of, of monetary policy of buying you know, long-term bonds, trying to bring down long-term bond yields. What do you think the legacy of, of that has been? Um, in, in, um, uh, do you have any particular thoughts on, on Japan and, and being this, yeah, this low I, interest rate environment? Yeah, it's a long. very important part of the world economy. I, I spent several months at the Bank of Japan learning how they work and talking with the policymakers and have followed pretty closely. I think they have a new governor coming in, a new government coming in, and that will change things. I think it will get back to a more rules-based policy. We'll see. Is mm -hmm. Kuroda leaving? He's just retiring, I think, this pardon, month. Sorry. I think Kuroda the, the, uh, is exiting this month, and, and they're bringing Yeah, I mean, they're... They mean well, they're good people, but I think they have lost track of how to conduct monetary policy, and it usually comes back a little bit. But it's a different country, different policies that are taken throughout, and so you have to put that in the right context. But it's important. I think what's important now is how do you have a global system where each central bank, assuming there's central banks in each country that are independent, are conducting policy in a way that's good for their economy, but it's also good for the world economy. And that's what I think, that's what I hope will happen in the next few years. We've made a lot of progress, we're not there yet, that's for sure. And I think that, as you say, there's disputes, some people think it's too simple, some people think we need to do more complicated things. What's amazing is you don't have to be that complicated, it works pretty well. That's what evidence has shown. Mm -hmm. It's been uh, 50 years since Bretton Woods. Um, and you know we've been in this uh, flexible exchange rate regime for some time. Any thoughts on? Uh, you know, this was obviously a big uh, 
debate that uh, Friedman had with Mundell. Um, you know, Friedman definitely won the uh, flexible uh, exchange rates uh, fight. Um, you know, when yes. when uh, fifty years ago uh, the the pegs were broken, um, but certainly I think Mundell. Uh, uh, was able to sort of get his you know euro brainchild in place and having a common currency in in, in euro and, and obviously that that's been very controversial. But I'm curious uh, what you think about the legacy of flexible exchange rates and and um, uh, and, and you know, that that we all have today. Yeah. So Milton Friedman was a good friend. He was here at Stanford for quite a few years and talked to him a lot about policy rules. That's for sure. He knew about the Taylor Rule very well. We talked a lot about that talked about the fixed money growth rule, and the idea of having a flexible exchange rate, that's in the Taylor rule, right? You, unless you somehow get together at one central bank so you have the same interest rate like in Europe. But there was definitely a way, how could you realize exchange rate is going to be flexible and still have a policy rule? And I think that's the, the fixed money growth rules of Milton Friedman uh, were very much that way. And so so was the Taylor rule. There's no exchange rate explicitly. And that was, they say, I worried a lot about that. What about the exchange rate? And it, it turned out to be pretty simple. In fact, the inflation rate and GDP gap and the interest rate is pretty close to a money, money growth rule. And uh, you, you look at the interest rate specifically rather than let the interest rate come out of the policy where you have a fixed money growth. Fixed money growth implies interest rate this, this way. The interest rate is decided and it implies implies the money growth rate. So the idea of a rule is very, very clear. That's, that, that's, as long as I've been in economics, I think about rules for strategies for monetary policy and fiscal policy. You asked me about how I got interested. Well, there were rules. They were comp more complicated, but how could you make it simpler? And then I think that was where working in Washington and understanding and, and, and getting to know the policymakers, getting to know members of Congress, getting to know the White House and how the president was working with other people, you can begin to see something simpler was going to be important to this. It's just you don't want it to be so complicated. There's no reason for it to be so complicated. Absolutely. And absolutely. You think about a Taylor, uh, Taylor rule and an open economy, you know, Mundell Fleming says, you know, if you're going to have uh, uh, you know, monetary policy where you can change uh, uh, Change interest rates and, and not have a pegged interest rate, um, you know, permanently. You, know, you have to allow uh, uh, to, for both movement of capital flows and um, and to have free flowing exchange rates. Um, I'm curious, getting back to, uh, just on, on a final note here. Uh, part of your time in, in Washington, you were uh, undersecretary for international affairs. Part of that uh, was not just focusing on the developed economies. Uh, in the developed world, but also on um, emerging economies and, and many other parts of the world, um, the developing parts of the world. Um, you, I, I know you spent some time helping to set up currencies in, in Afghanistan and Iraq in the early 2000s. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts on like global economic growth and your thoughts on regulation, institutions. Um, I'm sure you had many great conversations with, uh, with Milton Friedman. I, I spent a lot of my time sort of researching on uh, things that relate to economic growth and constraints yeah. on economic growth. I'm curious, like, what what is your broad thinking about, like, what is the secret sauce to economic growth in, in your mind? Well, I, I go back to the notion that you have good economic policy. It's monetary policy, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, and some international aspect. That seems to me, I've written books about that. That's the most important thing to keep in place. So monetary policy is very important, and so but countries are different. 
Maybe fixed money growth will work best for a small economy in Africa. And so you have to recognize the institutions are different. And I've always emphasized that. I think the, what, I, what I've seen over the very recent years and the experience with countries is that this kind of rule where the interest rate is the main variable, they could be countries coming together in a union of so, some kind like the European Central Bank and the monetary union. But the, the notion that there be some stable, understandable monetary policy is key. Because you, you know, think about how terrible it can be if you don't think of Zimbabwe. You know, I carry Zimbabwe notes in my wall to show kids how bad it can be. And it can be really terrible. And uh, we still have that problem around. And uh, there's other things that interfere with monetary policy. But just focusing on monetary policy, there's a lot that can be done in Africa, Asia, Latin America. Latin America still has high inflation rates. What's going on? They don't need to have that. But there's a still a feeling that, well, maybe high inflation is not so bad. In fact, right now, there's people saying, well, what's, why have a 2% inflation? Why don't we have 3 4 And so I don't think that's a good idea. I testified just last week in Congress and emphasized that 2% is where we are. It was a global, maybe many countries have that. There's a sense of that causes more stability than if is. one has 4 one has 10 one has 2 and so I think try to stick with that. And uh, there's always temptation, hey, what goes 3%, 4%, we could get to that, it's not a big deal. But it's a big deal. And that, that, is a, that is a unifying theme that I hope we continue with uh, in the future. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I know there's um, uh, been some discussions about uh, potentially a monetary union between uh, Argentina and Brazil. I, I don't know if that, uh, th th that'll happen or if that's a good deal for the Brazilians, but uh, I know that there is uh, a good chunk of evidence that, um, that you know, there's resurgent economic growth and maybe some evidence that uh, there's some convergence um, across the developing world. And um, uh, I, I think, uh, I, and this is really just in, in the past two decades, um, and uh, I think uh, it, it's fair to say that um, a lot of that, I think, is, is partially in, in thanks to, you know, monetary stability. And I think uh, uh, a lot of that goes back to so much of the great work that you've done um, over the past decades. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I know many are, um, are, are so fascinated by um, all, all of your work, John. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, John. It's been a, a real pleasure having you. It's been great. Thanks for your great questions. Terrific. I enjoyed it. Today, our guest was John Taylor, who is the Marion Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University and is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Baby, you give me